Good morning, everyone, and welcome into another episode of the Found Generation podcast, a podcast for young people. And as you can see, if you're watching the video version, I am in my closet, my home studio, but I'm sitting on the floor. That is because I have just sold my desk. I am moving again soon, and I think that is a very good indicator of things to come on today's episode because I am talking to Colin Wright. Now, let me tell you about Colin Wright. All of us as young people, and that is what this show is about, we talk about subjects that young people really care about, all young people seem to fantasize about traveling. We think about all the places we could go, the people we can meet, the things that we can learn. However, for many of us, that stays in our dreams. We don't actually do it. Colin Wright was once in the position that many of us find ourselves in right now. He decided way back when, when he was ascending in a career where he was going to make a lot of money, he decided to call it quits, to pursue a lifetime of travel and adventure and learning and pursuing his curiosity and what he was really passionate about. And so he became a full-time traveler and he decided, this is, this is what he did, this is crazy. He started a blog and this is back in 2009, 2010 time, I believe, He starts a blog, and so he would poll his readers every four months. He would choose a new place to live based on his readers' recommendations. He would go to that place, different countries. I mean, we're talking Thailand, New Zealand, Argentina. He would go there for four months, live it up, live like a local, and then go somewhere else. And he lived this way for about seven years. Beyond that, he went to... Uh, different parts of the USA. He traveled across the USA in in a van. He did the van life thing, refurbished a van. We're going to talk about that today, what van life was like. We're going to talk about what it's really like full-time traveling, if it's as glamorous as it appears to be on social media. We're going to talk about all the lessons he's learned. And it's a really informative, entertaining, thoughtful episode. Colin Wright is one of the smartest people I have ever met and also He's a minimalist. If any of you dream about giving away any of your worldly possessions like I just have with my desk, then this is also going to be a good episode for you. And for me personally, this is very meaningful because as a so-called minimalist, I'm nowhere near as minimalist as Colin is, he was one of the very first inspirations for me when I started on my minimalist journey five, six years ago. So this was particularly meaningful for me. I am so thankful to Colin for joining me. I'm thankful to you guys for checking this out. You can also check out this episode of the Found Generation podcast over my YouTube channel if you haven't subscribed over there yet. What are you waiting for? Enjoy my episode with Colin Wright, and then I'll talk to you on the back end. There's a bazillion places that we could go. You are a well-traveled man, a curious man. If anyone has ever consumed any of your stuff, they know how wide-ranging your interests are and how deep your knowledge is on so many subjects. But what I am most curious about selfishly is how did you live this way, this exile lifestyle, as you called it? How did you live this way, moving new places so frequently and doing that alone? Did you ever get <laughs> tired of that lifestyle? Did you ever crave having you know, a partner with you the whole time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, semi-regularly, actually. And that initially, at least, was part of the point. I wanted to be forced to, just as I was 
expanding my worldview by experiencing a lot of external stimuli, new things, new places, new people constantly. I also wanted to force myself to spend a lot of time inside and a lot of time in my own head and to be forced to be bored and to be forced to be lonely and to be forced to sit with that for long periods of time. And in some cases, like very focused 13 hours on a bus from one place to the next, or in some cases, the first several weeks in a new location where I don't know anybody and I don't speak any of the language and I have no idea what's going on and I'm tired and exhausted. And I just want something familiar and food that I recognize as food immediately. And, you know, I I wanted to experience all of that fish out of water, sort of um, that stimuli, but I also wanted to be forced to sit with it and to not be able to escape it. Because I think as a lot of people who go through those sorts of things recognize the first inclination for most of us, because we tend to err toward uh, saving energy and not stressing our systems and not going through those sorts of things is to say, well, I'm un- I'm feeling uncomfortable. Everything's unfamiliar. I need to find a Starbucks. I need to I need to go to something familiar that I'll understand that feels like home. And I didn't want to be able to do that because I find personally at least that a lot of my most valuable experiences are frictionful. They're they're not easy. It's I usually think of it in terms of like going to the gym where you don't want to push yourself so far that you injure yourself, but you also don't want to do things that are so easy that it's not stressing your muscles at all. The sweet spot is stressing them just enough that then you tend to grow over time and your muscles are like, okay, I need to do a little bit more because we're breaking down the sinew and pushing just beyond what you're capable of. And for me, the period of travel and all of the travel that I do is one means of continuously stressing myself in that way to make sure I'm always pushing just beyond what I'm capable of. And if you do that long enough, then you can get to kind of extreme points where you're like, okay, well, it's really easy to go to all these unfamiliar places. How can I make that a little bit trickier for myself? And and so a lot of the stuff that I've written about over the years when it comes to travel and when it comes to what you described, being bored and being forced to go inside your own head and being a bit lonely and having to sit with all that stuff is just increasingly, it's like picking up heavier and heavier weights in that regard over time. For some people, that lifestyle of of being bored and lonely and in your head and surrounded by total newness and unfamiliarity, that sounds like something that would scare away a lot of people and would say that that is absolutely nothing that I want to do. I, I need my Starbucks. I need my creature comforts. So what was it for you? What was your ultimate goal that when those thoughts entered your mind, the motivation that made you not run back home to the United States where everything was comfortable? Well, I want, first and foremost, there's absolutely nothing wrong with investing in the other direction. I think that there's a lot to be gained from staying put, putting down roots, building networks and relationships, and working on very, very focused things for long periods of time. I think that's a different path that you can take that's just as legitimate and valuable. And if you prefer that, I think that's wonderful. Uh, for me personally, I had spent enough time doing that, that I wanted to expand my horizons in the sense of being able to see things from new angles. And so 
the familiarity thing is still valuable and still wonderful. And over the years, even in the midst of my more heavily uh, heavily travel focused period, uh, pre-pandemic, when that was a whole lot easier to do, I was still periodically settling down to try to get more of that as well to balance things out. But the the impetus for going around the world and exposing myself to very intentional difficulties and frictions and that lack of familiarity and loneliness and everything else was to try to three-dimensionalize my view so that rather than looking at the world and myself from the same perspective for most of my life, I could look at all of those things from a bunch of different locations, both literally in terms of geography, but also uh, psychologically, culturally, historically, everything else. You go to different locations, you meet different people who have different different properties and variables and histories and everything influencing the way that they see things. And that then forces you to see those different elements in yourself as well. And over time, you build out a greater depth, I guess, or a greater range of different ways of looking at things. And that was what I was trying to cobble together because my self-assessment when I started traveling was that that was something I seriously lacked mm. and I wanted to fill in those gaps. I guess what I'm so amazed by is the emotional component of this. I can't imagine for a long time there, you every roughly four months-ish would move to a new country. I wonder, how do you be happily or live happily and, and have contentment in a place when you know that you're just going to get up and go? For example, like I, I'm at a yoga studio here in New Hampshire. I, I'm at a gym and I and I have these little communities here and I go on dates and it's it's hard for me because I'm going to have to say goodbye to these people now. Like, how did you, you know, you went on dates, you tried to live a normal lifestyle. How did you not stop yourself from getting too invested and committed in something so that you could then let it go like a minimalist would before you go to a new place? I mean, part of it is recognizing that we live in the future. And so there's there's no longer goodbye. There's just see you later. Like yeah. if you want to stay in touch, you can. Um, you, you have that capacity. It becomes more difficult. The nature of the relationship will probably change because you won't be down the street from somebody that you like to hang out with every day. And so that dynamic will change. You'll be in a different time zone. You will be sleeping while they are awake. There are ways to stay in touch and to continue to develop that relationship, but the nature of that relationship will almost certainly change. So recognizing that helps because it helps you realize that those investments are not sunk stranded assets. Those are not things that you're investing in and then discarding. Those are things that if you want to, you can continue to invest in. And I think that's part of it. Um, part of it is embracing temporality. And recognizing that just because something is not forever doesn't mean it's not valuable. And I, some of my most valuable interactions with other human beings around the world have been things where we have one coffee together and then never talk to each other ever again, but they brought something to mind. They shared some experience. They said something or just the circumstances were as such that I will remember those moments forever. And they changed something fundamental in the way that I see things or the way that I behave or the way that I think. So that that's another component of it, that just because something is not permanent, something that you can't invest in forever for the rest of your days, that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. Uh, and then part of it, I think, is trying to cobble together, or for me at least, I think it's valuable trying to cobble together a sequence of moments and 
those sequences of moments can be holistically their own thing. Um, so while you can put down deeper and deeper and deeper uh, roots into the ground and you can continue to till that soil, you can fertilize it, you can maintain those sorts of heavily invested in overtime uh, elements to your life. I think it's also worthwhile to collect other things, things that are temporal, things that are bite-sized, and to consider that to be their own thing as well. And then to balance out the long-term with the short-term and to be able to view the short-term as something that is just as dense and solid and real uh, and influential on you as the the longer term, obviously dense things. Why were you never in favor of settling down somewhere and becoming a part of a community and and getting a job locally in that area or, or embedding yourself really within a community over a sustained amount of time? It wasn't a lack of favor for it. It was a lack of, or it was a focus on the opposite for me. And so, like I said, I think that there's just as much value to be had in the opposite extreme potentially. But for me, before I started traveling, I was much more heavily slanted in the putting down roots and investing in things and being heavily structured over time direction. And I felt that I was lacking almost like to use a workout metaphor again, for some reason, um, almost like structural muscles where you can overinvest in one muscle group and then lack a certain stability because you've worked out your biceps infinitely, but then you're not doing any of the other supporting muscles that can be unhealthy for your body. I find that it's important if I'm investing too heavily in one direction to then try to fill in some of the blanks in the other direction as well. And for me, I was so heavily invested in those structural elements and then the putting down roots and building something over the course of my life for long periods of time. As soon as I noticed that deficit in myself, I felt the need to fill in those blanks and to stabilize things and to, to rebalance the equation a bit. And in more recent times, and actually while I was traveling as well, there were several times that I decided to do the opposite as well to make sure I didn't lose that side of things as well. Because there are things that I miss when I'm on the road, when you're living out of carry-on luggage. Like I had been doing that for seven years or so, I think at one point. And I realized, oh my God, I don't know what furniture I would buy <laughs> if I had to do that. And I don't know who I am as an adult version of myself, having had all those experiences. What would I do? Would I be able to survive? Would Am I like reliant on constant novelty? Because I don't want that either. I don't want to be a shell of a person if I'm not constantly popping around chasing newness. Um, so who am I in that context now after having had all these experiences? And so over the years, I've also had periods of time uh, in Memphis, in Wichita, Kansas, now in here in Milwaukee where I'll settle down for a bit and put down roots and reinvest in those sorts of elements to see who I am in these contexts and to make sure that those, those muscles don't atrophy as I'm focusing on this other muscle group most of the time. I've explained a, a version of that to a much lesser extent to people. And the question that they've asked me, which I'm sure you've heard a million times is, well, what are you running from? Why can't you stay right. in one place? What, well, what? The FBI is what I'm running from. <laughs> And one day they'll find all the bodies. Yes, yeah, so you, you look like that kind of guy. <laughs> well, what I get is that your, a lot strangely. <laughs> what is your answer to that? What are you running from question? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the easy answer is I'm not running from anything. I'm running toward all the things that I can get on the road that I can't necessarily get when I'm holding still. And, and again, there's just as many things that you can get holding still uh, that you can't get while on the road. But that's why I like to have a balance of these things so I can make sure to fill in as many of the blanks as possible on both sides. I find it so amazing that you were able to suppress essentially, and, and I don't know too much about your upbringing, but the classic American kid upbringing is you chase the American dream, right? You are told from a very early on or from an age very early on, here is your path. You go to school, you get your degrees, you find out what you're interested in, you get a job, you find a place, you marry your beautiful wife or husband, you settle down your roots, you buy a house, you have kids, that's the path. And so I imagine that is what your parents and your family and your teachers and your coaches, you know, brainwashed you with for your entire upbringing. And you were able to just basically shut down all of that everything that you had been taught your whole life that was drilled into you from an early age and just say, no, I want to live a completely different lifestyle, follow a complete, completely different roadmap than everyone else. How are you able to shut down that voice in your head, which is inevitably <laughs> a part of you because you dealt with it for so long and just say, no, I'm not going to live that way. I'm not going to live this formulaic lifestyle like everyone else. And I'm going to go do what I want and follow my own curiosities and forge my own path, even though other people think it's crazy. Well, I definitely didn't shut down that voice. I've gotten better at ignoring it, but it's still there. It, it doesn't go away. And there's still moments and there have been moments over the past, however long, more than God, 13 years ish, something like that. Um, it pops up from time to time. And there are moments where I'm like, you made a big mistake. You could have been doing X, Y, Z by now. You could have had this much fortune. Like I, I basically optimized toward freedom of movement and time. And so I have most of my time even today, to do pretty much anything I want with, which is wonderful. And I have most of my cognitive energy and I can plan out weird little projects that are not meaningful to anybody but me. And I can afford to do that. And that's what I optimized toward. Didn't get me wealthy. And I could have moved in a wealthier direction right. back in the day. And that's what I gave up basically. But there are still moments where I'm like, oh, was that the right choice? <laughs> Man, you could have had so much money and you could have done so much with that money. But then I have to remind myself, well, you are the person you are today because of the other experiences that you've had. And if you had continued along that path, you would have been a very different person. And part of why I was able to, or why I decided to step away from that path is that the person who I was at that moment was drained and exhausted and miserable and unhealthy. And I had the fortunate opportunity to kind of get a preview of where I was going. And I had a couple of mentors back in the day when I was living in LA, living the life that I was living, running a, a branding studio. I, I had the opportunity to see what some of those mentors were doing with their lives and the direction that I was headed. And I, I didn't like what I saw. I mean, they, they were very successful people by most of those metrics that I cared about at the time. And the way that they were living their lives was just so sad to me. Um, and, and it wouldn't be sad to everybody. You know, again, different people care about different things. But for me and what I was telling myself, I was working toward, it was completely dissonant with what I told myself, the direction I told myself I was going and where I would end up and what I would be able to do 
once I reached all these different milestones that I had on the horizon. So that was part of it, being able to forecast into the future what my life would be like by looking at actual examples of the people who I was learning from. That helped quite a bit. Um, and in a lot of ways, too, I also just grew up in a very privileged position, not monetarily. We never really had a lot of money, but I have a great family. I have wonderful parents. I have wonderful siblings. That provides a sort of safety net mentally. Like Even if you never want to use it, if you are on the trapeze and you know there's a safety net beneath you, you're willing to perform some weird tricks because you know, worst case scenario, you've got a support system. And so that's something that I've been very fortunate to have my entire life. Uh, my entire life. And that has helped immensely as well. When you decided way back when, again, very early on in your career, you're working as branding studio, working with some some big name clients, your your life, you were going to live a luxurious lifestyle, going to be in Los Angeles, living that American dream that so many other people would have killed to be in your position for. And you decide to give that all up. And you whittled your life down, to, I think it was 51 things and decide that you were going to travel the world and move all these places and have these crazy experiences. What did the people closest to you when you made that decision? What, what was their reaction to that decision? There, there was some alarm. Um, <laughs> th those wonderful parents that I mentioned, actually, they were, oops, they were very good at hiding this from me, which was great of them. They've done that for me several times over the years where at first, when I, I quit a, a great job or, you know, by many standards, a great job to start up my own business, they they hid it from me as well, that they were very worried about me because I looked like I was on this great path and I gave it up to become an entrepreneur. And that turned out well, fortunately. And some of the other crazy stuff I've done over the years turned out well. And so they they gave me the benefit of the doubt, but they also just always supported me and my siblings and anything that we wanted to do. So that was helpful. I found out years later that they were so terrified and didn't sleep a wink for like weeks because they were so worried about what was going to happen to me and what I was going to do and that I was going to end up just destitute and kidnapped and everything bad was going to happen. Um, I had mostly it was in my professional life that people were willing to tell me that they thought I was making a very bad choice because they were still operating in accordance with the standards, um, the the goals that they were aiming toward were the ones that I was giving up. And that's it's almost like a religion to a certain degree where it's very difficult. Like I hate having conversations about religion to a certain degree because it's very difficult to tell people you don't believe what they believe without accidentally offending their sensibilities, because in doing that, you are calling into question things that they consider to be very important and truthful, like the only truth and the only concrete reality that they're living in. And so when I brought this up to some of my mentors in particular, I was questioning their faith. I was questioning all of the things that they'd used to shape their lives and all of the attributes and uh, the the goals and milestones that they cared about and considered to be important and that they respected the most about themselves, the things that they had done. I was saying, those are things I don't care about anymore. And I can see how that could feel like a bit of a slap in the face when that's something that you've dedicated all of your time and attention and energy, your life, all, all the sacrifices you've made for those things. That's a difficult conversation to have. And it comes across as like a, a de facto uh incrimination uh, or slap in the face for your, your faith-based uh, world-shaping ideology. So those were tricky. 
And they essentially told me in, in everything except these direct words that you're making a big mistake and you're giving up everything that you've worked toward and you are kind of dead to me now because you're worthless to me now, according to the standards and context in which we're operating. But I mean, most people were actually pretty supportive because my idea was to go out and do this thing that most people work their entire lives to do. But I was saying I was going to do it in my 20s instead of waiting to my 60s or maybe beyond that. That was one of the things that I realized is that these people I looked up to, most of them said they were going to do something. They were working to earn money so that they could do these things, but then they never really got around to them. And for me, I was saying I was going to do those things early. So that was something that was motivating to a lot of people that I had in my life to varying degrees. A little bit scary, I think, to some. It was scary to me. But it was also something that a lot of people were cheerleading for, or bare minimum, like my parents, they were hiding all of the concerns that they had because they knew that it probably wouldn't help. I was already concerned enough. To live this kind of lifestyle, like I said, you had to shed uh, many of your possessions and uh, so that you could travel lightly and go to all these places. So I just kind of want to have a, a conversation about minimalism and, and educate uh, our listeners here. And it's actually, so I discovered your work uh, through your appearance in the, the Minimalist documentary with uh, with Josh and Ryan. Uh, you've worked closely with them. You lived together with them in a cabin in Montana, I think, for, for a couple <laughs> months there, which is a crazy story, I'm sure. Um, so just in in your perception of it, what does minimalism mean to you? So minimalism is focusing on the most vital things in your life, whatever that happens to be to you. And then orienting your time, energy, and resources, including your money, but not only your money, toward those most vital things. Okay. And so throughout the ensuing years, how did you embody that lifestyle? Well, part of it was stepping away from spending all of my time and energy on the work that I was doing in order to focus on work that I cared more about. Part of it was orienting away from earning as much money as possible just for the sake of earning as much money as possible and establishing how much I needed to do the things that I wanted to do and then taking a lot of the time, energy, and resources I was spending on accumulating more money just for the sake of accumulating money on other stuff. And in a lot of cases, that other stuff has been experiences like travel. It's been having the ability to start projects that wouldn't earn me any money. It's been the ability to invest in relationships that are inconvenient, the ability to invest in hobbies, the ability to learn stuff just for the sake of learning stuff. It's basically been the freedom to spend my time and energy as I choose, as opposed to feeling the need to spend myself and wring myself out in the pursuit of rewards like, but not exclusively money, money, professional prestige, a whole lot of other stuff that I once considered to be very important, um, recalibrating that stuff in a direction that makes me happier and more fulfilled. I think as the minimalists themselves say, I think their quote is, I hope I don't butcher it, Minimal, minimalism is the thing that gets us past the things to make room for life's most important things. I think that's right. a yeah. really good way to, uh, to whittle it down. Now, I'm sure the question that all the listeners are, are wondering is how were you making money on the road? Because you were, you were traveling this way before the remote work revolution was happening. So what, <laughs> how were you affording this lifestyle? In some cases, just barely. Um, 
But so at the beginning, I held on to a handful of my clients. I, I shut down my studio in LA and handed off most of my clients, but I held on to a few that I could do from the road that I could continue to work with from wherever. And for the first several countries that I lived in, that was my primary way of making money was essentially freelance design work. I'd started writing on a blog called Exile Lifestyle early on in this process. And that writing got me the ability to do some freelance stuff, uh, writing freelance stuff. But then I also experimented with a couple of books that initially were little giveaways to try to draw people toward my blog, which was like a hot new thing to do at the time. This was a long time ago. Uh, but then I was able to write some books that I charged for. And that then by what, late 2010, so a little over a year after I started traveling, I was able to pivot to almost exclusively making money from writing. And it was a combination of things. It was a lot of freelance stuff. And then it was producing more and more books and then making money off of the sales of those books. But I was able to pivot over relatively quickly, which was a very fortunate thing. And partially because of when I got into it, when eBooks were still a, a fairly new thing. Um, and then over the years, it's been different things. I've currently, I make a significant part of what I make each month from podcasts, things like Patreon and memberships through Memberful. And in some cases, there's a lot of speaking gigs that then bring in lump sums of money. But then I have other things like royalties from books that bring in more of a trickle most of the time. But then when I go on tour, it boosts some of the incomes and it reduces others. And at any given moment, it's going to be, I think of it as like a stool where there's different legs that are different income uh, modalities, and I need to constantly rebalance them because of the yeah. way that I do things. Yeah, I, I've worked freelance before as well, and for those people who who have only kind of worked stable corporate jobs where you get the same paycheck every two weeks, it's stressful. It takes some getting used to because it fluctuates. Like one month you're earning something that is pretty high, and another month you're earning something that's very low. So was that ever stressful for you just with the, the fluctuating incomes? Oh, yeah. it's I mean, it's a feast and famine cycle. Yeah. And fortunately, after a while, and I, and I had a fair bit of experience with this because like I started my first company when I was in school. And so I had some a decent amount of entrepreneurial experience. At least I got a lot of the early mistakes out of the way when I was still in my late teens. Um, I had some experience with that before I set off on my own and started traveling. So I knew that in in the plentiful periods, you put money away. And <laughs> I got pretty good at making sure that those things balanced out over time. And you really do have to be pretty disciplined and responsible with your money if you want to do freelance work. How do you prevent yourself from, because many young people especially would get a big paycheck and say, I'm going to go spend this on X, Y, and Z, this thing I want, this experience I want. How do you kind of train that muscle of discipline to prevent yourself from doing that thing, which sounds fun, but might not be the best financial decision. Part of it is just experience where you recognize, remember that month where you felt horrible and you thought all of this was going to collapse and you'd have to stop everything and you'd have to go live with your parents for a bit. And you'd have to like, you'd have to use that safety net. You'd, you'd have to have all these horrible financial things happen. Like you don't want to experience that ever again. And so you get responsible because of that. But part of it, I think it goes back to the minimalism thing where before you can focus on what's most important, you need to understand what's most important. And it will be different for each of us. Like none of us have exactly the same things that are most vital to us. And so for me, 
recognizing that continuing to one, not be stressed about money all the time. So I can get a coffee if I want to buy a coffee when I'm at the airport or something like that, and not worry that that's going to put me over the limit for the month, um, that sort of thing. But then also recognizing that I get more pleasure and more fulfillment and satisfaction over uh, from very simple things. And in a lot of cases, those simple things are things that I can do best when I've got a very stable foundation under me in terms of knowing where I'm going to be sleeping, knowing that I can afford food or that I have groceries at home, having certain things like that in place allow me to do more of the things that I want to do and from which I derive the most pleasure and value. And so for me, it's just, it's understanding here's where the money should go to get the most out of it. And here are some things that you might be tempted to do momentarily, but then you know from experience that they probably won't give you as much as these other things. And in some cases might actually detract from your happiness because of that additional stress that they can cause. The other big logistics issue that comes when you're living such a fluid lifestyle is your housing. I'm just very curious to know what what were you doing? Airbnbs, you know, the the hopping on the the couch hopping thing. What was your method of uh, finding a place to live? Uh, all of the above and more. Um, <laughs> when I started traveling, Airbnb didn't exist yet. And then that actually made it a lot easier in the later years, because in, in a lot of countries, it's tricky, especially when you don't speak the language, when you first show up to find somebody willing to rent it to you. Um, fortunately, of all the places I've been, the U.S. is the most difficult for short-term rents to find something that's not an 11 or 12-month rental, depending on the state. So most places I've lived, I've been able to find somebody through Craigslist, through something like Facebook Marketplace. Most countries have their own version of that sort of classifieds thing online. But then also just by walking around, I'll usually get a hostel for the first couple of days that I'm in a country and then just walk around to find a neighborhood I like. And then look for signs and look for places that are renting. In some cases, I'll meet up with people, you know, either readers who have contacted me or just like strangers I meet at the grocery store because I have no shame. And so I'll ask people like, hey, I'm new to the neighborhood. What, what do you like? What's your favorite coffee shop? And then sometimes they'll know somebody who then they're renting out their mother's place and their mother moved to another country. So this place is just sitting there and it needs a cleaning, but they'll rent it to me for X, Y, and Z price. So there's a lot of different approaches you can use. Many of them are easier now. Um, Airbnb is getting a little bit more expensive as they're increasing the costs and cleaning fees and stuff are getting kind of cumbersome as well. But there's easier options if you're willing to spend a little bit more. And then there's more less less certain, but more fun and usually less expensive when you can make them happen options as well, like finding people and walking around and, and doing that type of search. Um, but I've done couch surfing a bit. I've Slept, I've slept on a lot of friends and family members' couches as well. I've done a lot of hostels. Typically, these days, I prefer when I can to have my own space. One, because I need to record audio. And it's. I, I don't like to put other people out and say, can everyone just be quiet for an hour while I record this podcast and keep your dog quiet as well? Like, I'd rather not put people out in that way. And, and it's less stressful for me when I know I can set up my space a little bit better like that. But when you're on the road, you kind of just go with it too. And sometimes it's fun to have additional randomness and to have to fit yourself into somebody else's context for a while, because there's a lot of learning that you can do in that type of space. So when you're sleeping on, you know, a hostel bed, which not the most comfiest and they're often not the most luxurious, you're sleeping on friends' couches, when you have the means to live 
a more a more glamorous and luxurious life. How do you prevent yourself from wanting that, from staying humble enough to know that, you know what, I'm not good enough to be sleeping on a friend's couch, or I'm not too good to be sleeping on a friend's couch? <laughs> hmm. I, I don't think I value the things in that way. I So I do enjoy, I really enjoy having my own space. Uh, I've been in Milwaukee a little over a year now, uh, partially because of the pandemic, partially because it's it's another period where I had a whole lot of travel and now I'd like to hold still for a little bit and invest in in what you can invest more optimally from one place. But I like to feel when I move in this direction that it's a luxury. And then after I've done this for a bit, I like to move in that opposite direction and feel like it's a luxury. Because after staying in one place for a while, what starts to look really good is going anywhere, anywhere at all. And just having your options taken away, not being able to customize everything to your deepest desires and most specific desires, and instead just having to go with the flow for a while. There's a luxury feeling to that when you've held still for a while, or for me, at least there is. And then the opposite is true when I've been doing the opposite for a while. So I I don't think of one or the other as being better or worse. Um, there's cheaper and less cheap options, but then there's also things that are cheaper when you're holding still. It's much easier to to make all of my own food when I'm living in a place where I have a kitchen, whereas I have to do a lot more prepared stuff or rely on other people for food when I'm traveling. So it's they're they're equivalent in value to me, even if they're very, very different circumstances. So in 2020, the pandemic obviously affected every single person on this planet. When the pandemic hit, how did that affect your travel lifestyle? <laughs> in pretty much every way. Uh, I, I was actually returning to the US from London to visit my parents for like a week or two at the end of February 2020. <laughs> and so uh, passing through the airport, I a lot of what I do these days is news analysis. So I was aware that this thing was happening in China. And I was feeling like it might spread soon just because of the small reports that weren't confirmed yet that were popping up. So I knew it was a thing. And passing through the airport, they were asking, have you been to China recently? No? Okay, don't worry about it. And nobody had masks. And, and that was the, uh, the circumstances at the moment. But very quickly, it turned into something else. And I ended up hunkering down with my folks who are a bit older. And my dad is in kind of a, a higher risk group because of some surgery he had at one point. So I was glad to be stuck there. One, because they're wonderful people. Uh, two, because I mean, I'd, circumstances would have been just as dire, if not more so in other places, because I would have been locked down in an unfamiliar place with unfamiliar people. Um, but three, then I could make sure that they were good and that I could go out and get the groceries rather than them having to go out and take that risk. So it, all things considered, it was the best bad situation it could have been, I think. Very, very fortunate in that regard. But I, I haven't really traveled since then. I, I did a little bit of shuffling about road trip wise earlier on in the pandemic in ways where I wouldn't be exposed to other people. And then once the vaccines came out, I did a little bit more road tripping. And I've been going to a lot of museums and art events and social events now uh, here in Milwaukee since that became a more tenable thing. And people wore masks and started doing more stuff outside and such. But haven't done much in the way of travel travel recently. Uh, the biggest stuff I've got coming up, I'm doing a road trip down to North Carolina and over to Baltimore with my girlfriend in about a week. 
And then at the end of September, I'll be flying out to Seattle to house sit and take care of my siblings' pets while they go on a cruise, Wow! which gives you a sense of maybe our different views on pandemic risk. But uh, yeah, beyond that, I haven't really done anything, which has been great in the sense that it's encouraged me to really double down on the living in one place and figuring out who I am in this type of space. Now that I'm a 37-year-old man, like, how have you changed? What? Who are you when you're in one place and, and do not have the travel thing to rely upon in terms of defining yourself? But but it's also put me in the state where I'm very much looking forward to sleeping on some couches again. At some point. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that becomes a, a tenable reality at some point. So now that you have hunkered down in Milwaukee for, for some time here, what have you found? What, what is the answer to that question about who you are as a person in one place? I have refocused a lot of my attention on things that I consider to be important, uh, not just to me and not just to a relatively small audience, but more universally. I think misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation are causing or contributing or amplifying a lot of the problems that we have in the world right now. And not being able to discuss things between ideological groups is tricky as well, in part because of that that muddying of the informational waters. And so a lot of what I'm doing for money these days is news analysis and things related to news analysis, which is something that I did way back in the day. I, I almost majored in journalism, but then I wrote for a bunch of papers back in the day doing news analysis columns. And that's something I've been doing in podcast and written form for a while now. I've also been reinvesting in doing artwork, which is something that I also almost majored in. I, I got my degree in design and illustration, but I went to school for fine art. And before that, I was thinking about majoring in journalism. So dusted that skill off. I've been doing a lot of painting and drawing, and I got into oil pastels recently, which are just delightful. Um, I've been collecting, well, collecting is a, is a very grandiose way of saying that I've been investing in art and that's something that I've been hanging up more and trying to support local artists. And I've got a couple of pieces that I inherited from my grandmother that I've done. Now I have a place to put them and that I can enjoy them on a regular basis. Uh, and, and I've been cooking a whole lot, which is something that I do anytime I have a home base with consistent equipment. I have my chef's knife, I have a couple of appliances, and then I have the desire to eat delicious food whenever possible. So I've been doing a whole lot of that. When I'm in one place, I typically cook almost every meal that I eat, which is just a wonderful thing to be able to do for oneself for a variety of reasons. So th there's a lot of things like that. I I could probably go on and on. I, I started running after for the first time in my life. It, it turns out I had like a medical condition that made it very difficult for me to do it, but I've I've had insurance in the United States and I've been able to go to the doctor and get those types of things handled as well. So there's a lot of really, really positive things that I've been able to do and things that I will probably miss the convenience of them when I'm back on the road again. But at the same time, I'm also very interested to see how some of these things translate to being on the road as well. Have you ever wanted children? No, actually. Yeah. I, like I, I'm very happy for people who do and who are able to do that and to invest themselves in it. Uh, I, I myself am the, am the beneficiary of wonderful parents, and I've seen what goes into having kids and, and just being amazing parents, but it's never been something I've wanted. Uh, I've got three siblings, though, who all want it, and two of which 
very recently had kids. And part of the reason I'm doing the travel that I am in the near future is to go meet my new niece and nephew. So I, I'm, I'm a very enthusiastic uncle, but uh, it, having my own kids is not something that I've wanted. Now, you were doing van life for a little bit there. You were, you were traveling across the country. You had an RV that you re- refurbished and you were doing speaking gigs, right? Yeah, that, that was really weird and stressful. <laughs> um, it, it was a lot of fun, though, and I, and I learned what I wanted to learn from it. In, in essence, I was planted in one place for a while. I was living in Memphis, Tennessee for a bit, and I was feeling that need to get back out and about and to do things. And so two things that I'd never done before popped up on my radar. One was I had long toured with other people giving uh, talks in different locations. And usually when I give talks, it's at like a, a university or at a conference or something like that. And you get paid for it just from the organization behind whatever that event is. But I thought it would be neat to be able to set up my own tours and my own speaking events on a more regular basis whenever I wanted to, uh, which is not something that I knew how to do, but I thought it would be fun to to have the excuse to learn how to do it. So I set up my own kind of deconstructed tour around the United States and Canada and set up about, I think it was 50-ish different uh, speaking gigs at different locations. And I also thought it would be neat. I, I realized I'd never set foot in an RV before, but I was doing research for some other project on radio antennas, I think it was. And I, I got my radio operator's license just kind of on a whim. And I, I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat to like figure out what goes into an RV, because that's something that's like travel, but also you have a home base and I could like (laughs) keep cooking while on the road, but then maybe I could combine it with the tour thing and I could go on tour in an RV and travel around. So I started researching that, uh, did a couple of test drives at a, at an RV sales location nearby. They let you do that. Um, and then I eventually whittled down the type of RV that I wanted to get and that I thought would be a good investment in terms of being able to get good value for the money, but then also something that's very reparable, something where there's abundant parts available if something goes wrong, something I could afford to buy outright, and something that would seem like a good investment for that use case. And so I eventually found a 1985 Holiday Rambler Imperial, which was 33 feet long, a bit longer than I wanted, but it was available and nearby. And it was something that seemed to be in pretty good shape. And it was a really good price for what it was. I had to do a hell of a lot of repairs on it. I had to replace all of the tires and it has like, what, eight, 10, 12 different tires. It has a bunch of tires. Uh, Had to do some work on the AC, had to do some work on the engine, but it was a an amazing learning experience. It was absolutely terrifying to drive, but it was also a model that was like top of the line in 1985. And it had this big chunky black and white CRV or uh, CRT style CCTV camera on the back. And it had a microwave big enough to fit a small human in and like all of these things, power steering. It had, it was like the first model that had or had all of these modern amenities. And the dashboard looked like a Soviet spacecraft. It was just incredible. So I, I, I bought this thing. I worked on it for ages. I had a lot of help on the working uh, on it angle from some family friends and my parents, fortunately. They, they were happy to help me tinker around with it and get it cleaned up and get it set so I could drive. It was an incredibly valuable experience, both in terms of learning about the complexity of setting up a tour, which is something that I will almost certainly be doing again, but will probably be focusing on house shows as opposed to renting out venues, because those are the ones that I enjoyed more and they make more sense financially for certain business models for that type of thing. 
and I probably won't be buying an RV again because <laughs> although it was a, a, an incredible experience and I really loved that vehicle for the time I had it, it got like six miles per gallon, um, you know, like 14 ish, if you were not running the AC and you're on the highway, but <laughs> most of the time it had like a 75 gallon tank and you just deplete that thing on a semi-regular basis. It was incredibly expensive to operate. It ended up actually being cheaper for the last third, last fourth, I think of the tour after I sold it, uh, at a profit, but, uh, I sold it and then started just staying in hotels it was cheaper to stay in hotels oh, wow. than it was to travel in the RV, which was not what I had anticipated. <laughs> uh, but it was also just less stressful. And I think some people really enjoy being behind the wheel of just an absolutely massive vehicle. I was terrified the entire time <laughs> I was going to kill someone. And I was just the stress levels, the amount of anxiety that I felt every time I got behind the wheel of this 33 foot monstrosity was just it, it was all consuming. And so getting rid of it when I was living in Quartzsite in Arizona, which is just a, an amazing place to check out, by the way, if you're ever renting an RV or something, it's most of the population of that city at any given time is living in RVs. I think there's like three buildings in the entire town that are not RVs or trailers. But I, so selling it there was one of the better decisions I made too. I'm glad I had that entire experience that was absolutely terrifying, but also educational. But I'm also glad that I, I moved forward from it. There is a, there's this prevailing notion for sadly most people in this country that once you get your degrees, once you graduate from college, that you're done learning, but you have <laughs> devoted your entire lifestyle to learning new things and always staying curious. What is it that motivates you to always keep that mindset top of mind? It just makes me so happy. I just, I had mentioned before that part of minimalism is figuring out where best to spend your time, energy, and resources. And I have consistently found that if I orient all of those things toward a lifestyle that allows me to continue to invest myself in learning in, in all its forms. So that's learning in terms of reading books, learning in terms of going out and seeing new places and meeting new people and experiencing new perspectives and learning internally, like figuring out more about yourself, keeping tabs on how you change over time, learning what makes you happy and fulfilled. Those are the things that consistently lead to the best outcomes for me uh, across every possible measure of those outcomes. Consistently learning and growing in those ways are things that fuel me. I'll get you out of here uh, on this. Thank you. This has been amazing. Just kind of back to your, your travel lifestyle. I'm sure there's a lot of people who have listened to this so far and have said to themselves, I want to live that way. But I would like for you to answer who is this kind of lifestyle for and who is it for not who would you not recommend to kind of mirror the lifestyle that you've had well i actually wouldn't recommend that anybody mirror it directly or completely uh, th this was a lifestyle that has constantly changed for me too as i've learned more about what works for me and what doesn't and so it's something that one should be iterative. You should always be set it up in such a way that you can change it because there's a good chance that Colin's version or the Instagram version of this that you see out there is not for you. And it's probably not accurate too, because you're always only hearing about the Instagrammable portions of it or the, the parts that the blogger chooses to write about because they're sexy or interesting. Um, 
those are not good representations, first of all, but also it's, it, there's a very good chance that some elements of it will work and some of it will not work for you. And so you, you shouldn't ideally just take somebody's model for it wholesale. You should cobble together your own out of things that you discover work for you. Um, I will say too, that it's easier for some people to do this than others. It, it helps to come from a stable background. You don't have to be wealthy, but it does help to have those support systems in place, safety nets. It makes it a hell of a lot easier. And that is a privileged position that not everybody has. So if it doesn't work for you immediately, or doesn't seem like it's going to work, that's not necessarily something that you're doing wrong. There's a luck of the draw thing with a lot of this as well, just the cards that were dealt. Um, that said, I, I would say before you go out and make any radical changes to your life or decide I'm going to live in the this way, I'm going to get out into the get into the world and see new things and throw away all my stuff and I'm gonna quit my job. And, and before you do any of that, like give yourself a runway and like give yourself a decent sized period during which you can assess everything, figure out what you actually want your life to look like, what goals you actually care about. And then how you might optimize and orient things in that direction. And there's a very good chance. This is something that I hear from people about constantly when I give them this advice and then they check back in with me later. They realize the things that they originally thought they wanted were not actually what they wanted. And there's a very good chance that the version of life that you want is not going to be as extreme as you initially think. Because a lot of us aim for some type of extremist view on life when we're feeling kind of lost or bored with the life that we have now. We really just want to kick off in some direction, any direction, and get as far away from what we're doing now as possible because we're feeling unfulfilled or helpless or numb. And chances are, like your sweet spot, at least for the version of you that exists today, because it will change over time, but the sweet spot will probably be just like a little bit away, not like super, super far away in a completely different direction. And that may be different for you, but if that is the case, it makes sense to figure that out ahead of time so that you don't end up in some far extreme that then you have to invest a whole lot of time, energy, and resources again and sacrifice a lot to make it back toward that middle point. Much better to understand that from the beginning so that you can invest appropriately and then you'll get there faster and you'll you'll have more left to invest once you get there as well. Uh, so, so be careful with it and be thoughtful about it. Recognize that it will look different for you than it will for everybody else. And that's okay. Build your own custom made version for all of these things and base that building on what you learn about yourself and give yourself the opportunity, the time to focus on that for a while, you know, take weeks, take months, take a year, take more than a year, like however long it takes, make sure that you really understand at a deep level as much as possible who you are and what you care about and then allow that to guide the decisions that you make some amazing insight colin uh insight that you can get on the let's know things podcast some of my favorite books some thoughts about relationships uh becoming who we're meant to be you can check all of those out uh wherever you get your books and, and i'll put some links to that uh in the show notes as well colin thank you for being here thank you for all the uh information and inspiration you've bestowed upon me for the years and uh I wish you luck with whatever the next phase of your journey is. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. And likewise. <laughs>